Um, so we're glad you're here. Now we've got a ton of stuff going on, a lot of information that we just disseminated. We're going to move kind of quickly through this because we're still celebrating communion, all these wonderful things happening. We're having Vine Kids training. If you want to help with our kids and have not gone through the training, it's mandatory, so stick around this afternoon. Uh, we've got all church planning, team meeting this afternoon. We've got a lot of things going on today. And we're launching into this new series. And so I'm going to move us through it relatively quickly this morning. We're only going to be covering a couple of verses, um, but that's kind of the way we're going to be treating this new series. So if you've been with us for a while, you know that we love to preach through Scripture exegetically. What that means is that we like to do this word by word, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter kind of picture of historical Scripture in its context. It's what we love. And the reason for that is because we want you to have a love affair with Scripture. That's the entire goal of our church, essentially, is for you to fall in love with Scripture. Because if you do, it will change your perspective on everything. It'll change your perspective on the need to be in life group communities, how to serve and love your neighbors, how to live as missionaries. It'll change the way you think about finances, life, death, love, charity, grace, all these things Scripture affects and changes, right? So we want you to become familiar with it. We want you to love it. And we we love the idea of working through it contextually so that we don't get to skip the hard parts. The parts we come to, we're like, man, I don't know what we do with that. Let's dive into it. Let's tear it apart. Let's open it up. We've gone through 10 different full books at this point in time over the years, right? Some have taken us two years plus, like John. Well, we're starting this new series on the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians is a, a powerful book because at its very core, it is a, a book that wrestles with this sort of idea of God's unfathomable grace. It's just overflowing, powerful grace to reconcile all of creation, every part of broken creation to himself through Jesus Christ. And then he calls that reconciled creation to become the church. And the book is about the instructions that grace gives our heart as we go to live out this call as a church. It's a bunch of broken people from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds reconciled by Christ's death on the cross to go and use the gospel that God has given us to transform the world. That's the entire book. The book is a book about using the grace that God has lavished on us to become the church. We talk a lot and we will talk a lot about what that means and unity and all those pictures but it's a really powerful book because the church in Ephesus is probably the most educated and ministered to church of all the churches. And I'll tell you why here in just a little bit. But Paul gives them some really deep and powerful instruction. So just as a way of kind of understanding this, um, so Ephesus was a town that's in kind of right on the edge of what is modern day Turkey on the Aegean Sea. It was sort of called the gateway to Asia. It was the entry point to all of Asia from trade routes back in those days. So it sat on the port of Keister, the city that sort of, and capital that led into Asia. All the trade traffic went through there, and it was very well known. It was a large city for the time because it had a couple of things. It had all that trade going forward, but it also had a temple to a Greek goddess named Artemis or the Roman goddess Diana that was a huge deal. It was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a massive temple in which people from all over the world, pagans all over the world would come and they would worship. And there was a giant kind of economy around this temple. Lots of blacksmiths and silversmiths that were making small little statues and things you could worship that you could take and offer or you could put in your home, all surrounding this pagan idea of worshiping this god Artemis or the Roman goddess Diana. And so there's this bustling kind of trade culture, this bustling kind of culture that was very worldly and religious surrounding this 
this sort of town. And we know that it's an important town because Paul talks about it quite a bit in his letters. And he has two real encounters with the church or with Ephesus in which he establishes the church. He first finds himself in Ephesus returning from Corinth to Jerusalem. You'll see it in Acts chapter 18. Paul's traveling back to Jerusalem. He stops in Ephesus, has this incredible encounter with the people. And so he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. Now, we went through the whole book of Acts as a church. If you dig down deep in there, you may remember some of these things. But he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there to do ministry, and he goes on to Jerusalem. But he has this really powerful interaction with the church in which he tells them he's coming back. And chapter 19 is a story of Paul's return to Ephesus. And Paul comes back through and he spends more time in Ephesus than he spends in any other ministry location in all of his ministry and all of his uh, ministering journeys and all those sort of Paul's missionary journeys. He spends the most time in Ephesus, almost up to three years, which is an unbelievable amount of time for Paul. For the first three months he goes back, as he goes back into Ephesus, for the first three months he goes every day to the temple, every single day, and he gets in these just giant arguments with the Jews. And Acts chapter 19 tells us all about it. They just go back and forth and back and forth, and Paul's arguing for grace, and he's talking to the Jews. He's trying to win them because there's a huge group of Jews that are gathered in this city as well. They finally had enough with Paul. They're like, we don't want you coming here anymore. You get out of the temple. And so Paul says, okay. So he goes down, and he gets this lecture hall right down the road. And so he begins... And for two years, he begins lecturing and teaching in this hall every single day to both gather Jews and Greeks. And this is what he does for years and years and years. And he develops this incredible sort of movement in the church. A lot of folks are getting saved. Acts 19 tells us that his ministry was incredibly powerful, so much that God was doing miraculous things where Paul would touch a handkerchief and that handkerchief would be used to heal someone from their sickness or cast out a demon, like things were happening. And the town culture was shifting. It was shifting from a pagan culture to a culture that was actually beginning to follow Christ. And there began an uproar because the silversmiths and the blacksmiths were losing a ton of money. Because if all these people were turning to Christ and turning away from worshiping these pagan gods, then they weren't buying these little silver trinkets. And so they got really frustrated. Acts chapter 19 tells us all about it. In fact, the Demetrius is sort of the head silversmith guy. He organized everybody together and he says, we are losing all of our money. We're going to get rid of this Paul, man. He's real bad for business. And so he gets this kind of riot going with the people. And the people fill the streets because people are sheep, right? And they just do whatever's happening. And they get swept up in this mob. And this mob of 25,000 people fills the theater in Ephesus. And they're chanting, long live the goddess. Long live the goddess, right? So Paul says, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to talk to him. And the brothers and sisters, the Christians said, no, you can't. They'll kill you. You can't go in there. It's 25 angry, raging people that want their city back, essentially. And that's kind of the beginning of Paul's leaving of Ephesus. And so he basically says, all right, it's not good for me to be here, but the church is thriving, and so I'm going to leave Timothy. And so Timothy stays behind, and Paul moves on as he travels and ends up actually where he's going to write the letter under house arrest in Rome, waiting to set trial before Caesar, but he leaves Timothy. So when I say that, that perhaps Ephesus is the most educated, ministered church in all of Paul's churches, that's why, because for three years, Paul taught every single day. A lot of these churches are letters that Paul writes to these churches. Paul went in for a couple of weeks or a month. He spent some time, he established some leadership. They put some elders together, and then the letters become really important teaching tools because they only got a portion of Paul. But imagine having Paul teach for two and a half to three years on a daily basis, the church was robust. And not only that, he left them Timothy, right? His disciple. And Timothy takes up the teaching mantle. 
And so on some level, if you look at all the churches that were Paul's and you kind of look at them as students, Ephesus was the prize student. Thriving ministry, incredibly educated, right, in terms of Christian doctrine. So Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus around AD 61 or 62, right towards the end of his life. And most scholars believe that's true simply because kind of the way the timeline lays out. And we know that Paul wrote several of his other letters under house arrest in Rome while he's waiting trial. Now, if you remember our book study, the book of Acts, you remember the Acts ends with Paul just waiting in house arrest to see Caesar where he knows he's ultimately going to die. But he's pleading his case before him waiting for Caesar. And Acts just kind of ends, and Paul is there, and he still never gets to see Caesar. But the church just goes on. So he pins this letter to Ephesus under house arrest. And it's a really different letter than all of his letters. It's not personal. Like a lot of Paul's letters are like, hey, pray for me in this. I'm going to return to you. This is what's going on. My mom says hi. Tell your mom I said hi. Like everybody's mom says hello. Like it's really personal, right? His letter to the Philippians is like super lovey-dovey. It's like, oh my gosh, I love you guys so much. All these kind of, a lot of personal touches. His letter to the Philippians, his letter to Timothy, his letter to Titus. These are really personal correspondences. But Ephesus is different. It's really actually kind of formal. And the reason for that is most likely it's being used as a letter that's being passed around to a series of churches all over the region. So Paul didn't know all of these believers because the, the church in Ephesus was large, right? And it wasn't large like megachurch. We talk about church in antiquity. We're talking about small groups all over the city that are gathered together in different huddles in different areas. And this letter would have been circulated amongst them, even to the outlying regions. So it has some more formality to it. Plus, we also know that Paul knows he's at the end of his life. He's under house arrest at Rome, most likely going to die as soon as he faces Caesar, who is Nero, who's going to kill him anyway. And so Paul basically doesn't mix a whole lot of words. He just like, there's no more time for teaching. This is what you need to know. This is who you are. Go be the church. And it's powerful, and he doesn't mix any words, and it's incredible. And so it's almost like to his kind of prize student, right, Ephesus, saying, this is my final penned letter to you. You know everything you're supposed to know. Now just go and do it, right? Go and be it. And that's kind of where the book of Ephesians begins. It's powerful. And so we're going to look at it a little bit different this time around. So a lot of times we, we take these letters and we, we try and carve them into larger sections and work through the, the big pieces and go through all these. We're going to look at Ephesians a little bit differently. We're going to look at it from a much smaller scale. So we're going to take a verse or two or maybe three. That's pretty much the most that we're going to tackle a week. And we're going to try and really dive into the depths of what Paul's doing, which is going to do a couple things for us. One, it's going to make a lot of these messages, well, I'll say this up front, and then it will be a complete lie. We'll make them, a lot, we'll make them shorter, <laughs> right? It's not going to happen. But I think that's the idea. We'd be shorter, right? No more 48 minutes of doing whatever. But the reality is this stuff is deep. It may take us that long. But we're going to try and make them shorter, and we're going to try and focus on what is Paul saying to take away? Like, what are we walking away with? What is he trying to convey to the church on how they need to live? Because this is the essential part of this letter is, you know this stuff. Now go and let it change you and change the people around you. And so we're going to unpack over the course of the next 40 or so weeks, Ephesians, with this in mind. What is our call as the church? Have been reconciled to Christ by God's incredible grace and favor, no doing of our own, How are we in unity called to live and be different in our homes 
in our communities. And what is, what is Paul and ultimately Christ, of course, telling us in this letter? And so that's where we're going to begin. And the letter at its core is really the gospel of grace. Now, uh, Ephesians isn't a gospel per se as we talk about the, the four gospels. But essentially, gospel means the good news. And so Ephesians is the good news of grace. That's the euangelion, right? It's the Greek word for good news. It is the very proclamation of grace. And it's a call to love and unity and reborn identity. And so we're going to be exploring those themes. And this morning, we're going to look at the first two verses. Paul's introduction, right? Which we typically think is a lot of times a throwaway. Like, hey, good to see you. Hope the kids are good. You know, Paul does some very intentional things in all of his introductions. They're not throwaway texts in Scripture. They're proclamations and declarations. And what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see some authority that Paul commands. We're going to see a few things that he tells us we are as believers. And then in the middle of all that, we're going to see this call of what we've been given um, as believers that are just sort of unfathomable riches in God's kingdom. So if you got your Bible, we're going to look at two verses this morning, and then we're going to mosey on into communion. Open up to Ephesians chapter 1, right? Each week, we're going to use this thing, bring your Bible. If you don't have one, take the one that's in the chair with you or get one. Um, we're going to be walking through it. We teach through it every single Sunday that you're here. If we ever come on a Sunday and we don't teach through it or we're not just doing worship or something, like just get up and go. Get up and go. Like, hey, I don't think I'm done here because we've cashed our chips in at that point in time. So you're going to need it. Bring it. We want you to have it. We want you to fall in love with it. Um, Ephesians chapter 1. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for... This incredible Sunday, we celebrate really great things. The fall is this great time to sort of think about new rhythms as families. Think about new rhythms as a church. What kind of ways can we get plugged in and dive deeper into the community? What we're going to learn in Ephesians is this deep call to unity as the church. Right? The church is called to be the gospel proclaimers to a broken and dying world from all these different walks of life. We've been reconciled to God through Christ's physical death that we might know you and be reconciled to each other, and then we have the gift of telling the world about Jesus. We get to do that. And so we gather here on Sunday to be reminded of that call, to engage in worship with you, and to be sent out as a corporate entity, unified by Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach our hearts this morning. Just for this simple intro of a letter that Paul wrote, sitting in jail in Rome would change the world 2,000 years later that we would be sitting here dissecting and carving and exegeting every word that he wrote, Lord. That's how valuable and alive scripture is. And so, Lord, we ask you to make our hearts subject to it. Take a moment, just as you sit here this morning, and just ask the Lord to prepare you to, worship, or to, prepare you to be, hear his word, to engage with his word. Ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you. Just pray that God would move in them, that he would draw them in closer, that he would reveal himself to them. Just anything. Be in the habit of praying for the people around you. I say this every Sunday. Everything that unfolds around here is not about you. Be in the habit of praying for the people. Care about their spiritual movement in life. Pray for your friend or your husband or your kids or that person across the way that you don't know. Just pray for the people around you. Take a moment and think about someone other than yourself.
Lord, as we move through these verses, I pray that you would make them come alive. Uh, We know that Scripture is God-breathed. It is the very breath of God. Your word is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. You tell us that it penetrates even the dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. An encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We don't take it lightly. So, Lord, teach our hearts this morning. We ask these things in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So that's how we're going to carve up Ephesians, but I want you to keep those things in the back of your mind. That long history, we won't go over it every week. We might touch on it a little bit next week, and then we're just going to kind of move on from it. So hang on to it. Keep that kind of idea. Historical context is really important. So kind of keep that in the back of your mind of where Paul is, who he's writing to, what's unfolding in history as we kind of dive into this letter. And this morning, we look at the first two verses. Paul gives this salutation, this greeting, this hello, how are you? And it's packed with incredible things, all right? Three of them, to be exact, that we're really going to look at closely this morning. But let's take a look at it together. This is the first two verses of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So Brandon mentioned this uh, several, I don't know, maybe a year ago or something. We were working through another letter. He talked about the idea that one of the great things that's lost in our new kind of, kind of technological culture is this sort of art and beauty of letter writing, right? Like we just don't do it. We engage in quick texts, short send-outs, emails, things like that. But, I mean, when I was dating, when Meredith and I were dating, we were writing letters. Like, and it's hard to believe it was such a short time ago. But we were writing letters to each other. Right now, how how was college today? We would mail them and write them, and there would be a greeting, and then a lot of lovey-dovey stuff at the end. Right? We wrote letters. It's lost today, but the art of of an introduction to closing is incredibly valuable because you weren't seeing someone face to face, and so the recipient had to know that it was actually coming from Paul and not someone else. And they do this in two ways. Paul would say things that were very true about him and that only he might know, or that only the recipient might know. And two, it was always delivered by someone that both parties trusted. And that way, when they handed it to you, they're like, oh, we know this guy. Paul knows this guy. It's not a fake letter. And those were really important. In fact, kingdoms would put seals and wax coats on things, but normal people, they didn't have rings and signets and all those kind of things. But they would trust that what they read in the intro and what they closed with were true, specific, personal things that would say, ah, this is Paul. Right, of course, Paul. And it was delivered by someone that we both know and love and trust. And so Paul does that. He says a few things about himself kind of decreeing his authority of the message he's about to proclaim. He's going to tell these believers and remind them who they are in Christ. And then he's going to promise and remind them of some things that they've been given, right? This is all going to unfold in these first two verses. And the first thing that we see is Paul is going to declare the authority by which he is writing and by which this message will have, right? That's kind of our first look. Paul's declaring and decreeing this authority that he is writing with and that the message itself has. This letter is coming with power. This is how he says, he says, Paul, an apostle. Now, you got to understand the idea of apostleship, right? An apostle, biblically, is someone that was called for a specific purpose and sent out, right? A disciple is someone that was um, basically a studier of someone, right? So like you could be a disciple of a rabbi and not actually be an apostle. So all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. So the 12 disciples, if you will, are also apostles because Christ had personally called them and he personally sent them out. 
Now, we know there were a lot of other disciples that weren't in the 12. In fact, as the Gospels conclude, we know that the book of Acts starts and there were 120 disciples that had all kind of been following with Christ, but not all those 120 were apostles. We know the 12 were because they were called specifically by Christ and they were sent out, right? So they were apostles sent by the authority of Christ himself. They, of course, also were disciples. There were a whole lot of disciples that weren't apostles. But Paul says, I, Paul, am an apostle. So he's claiming to be in that group of called and sent people, right? Now, how does that happen? How can Paul be an apostle if he wasn't one of the disciples that was chosen by Jesus? Well, you remember, right? Remember the story in Acts chapter 9. Paul is a persecutor of the church. He's going around with the name Saul, which is his Greek, his, his Greek name, going around literally persecuting the church. He's got an authority letter written by the high priest, and his goal is to capture these Christians, put them in jail, ultimately have them killed, and rise up in the ranks of the Pharisees. So he goes to Damascus with this letter by the chief priests. Remember the story, Acts chapter 9. He's walking down the road. This light flashes. Paul falls to the ground and goes blind, right? And Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who is it, Lord? And he says, it's Jesus. He said, get up, and I want you to go into town. I want you to go down to this place. I want you to find this guy who I've basically carved out for you, and I want you to wait with him there. Paul's blind. They get up. They lead him into town. He goes down to this place, and he's waiting, blind. And then Jesus shows up in this vision of this guy named Ananias. And he says, Ananias, i got a task for you. I want you to go down to Straight Street. You'll see this guy, Saul, who's down there. I want you to tell him that uh, I'm going to be using him, and he's been called according to my name. And Ananias says, remember the story? He says, whoa, hey, Jesus, bud, uh, friend, do you know anything about Saul? You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the guy, but he's here to basically kill us all, right? And you remember the story in Acts 9? Jesus says, go. He's my chosen instrument of which I will take him and I will use him to take the gospel to the Jews and the Greeks and all of their kings. He's my chosen instrument. So Paul is an apostle because he was chosen as an instrument of Christ and sent by Christ. The other apostles were actually chosen by Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Remember, these are disciples that were handpicked by Christ and they were sent by Jesus, the Great Commission, into the world. So Paul says, I am an apostle. And that, that word carries a ton of authority. And he says, not only am I an apostle, but I am apostle of Christ Jesus. Now you may ask yourself, why sometimes do we say Jesus Christ and why sometimes do we say Christ Jesus? What's the difference? Well, because Christ is a title, not a last name, right? So it's not like Jesus, whatever his middle name would be, Christ, right? Like that's not how this works. Christ is a title. It's a messianic title that means the anointed one, the chosen one. So I don't know what Jesus' last name was, or if he even had one. But his first name was Jesus. His title was the anointed, the Christ, the one. So Paul's making a very specific call here when he says, I am an apostle of the anointed one, Jesus, the Christ, Jesus. So he's not saying, like, I've just been sent by this guy, Jesus Christ. Maybe you've heard of him, you know. His brother's Bruce Christ and his sister Sarah Christ. And they're a pretty good family. they got a really crazy, weird kid. But outside of that, Christ's family's great. He's not saying that. He's saying, this is the, the Christ. And I am an apostle of the Christ sent out, called by him, right? So he's saying, this is the authority of which I have by the will of God. 
So in other words, Paul goes, I didn't set out to do this. Like, I don't want this job. I'm not cruising around trying to become an apostle. I didn't choose it. I don't want it. It's not my goal. It's not my ambition. I didn't decide to go to seminary one day so that I could study to be a pastor to lord and rule over the people. Like, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I have been decreed and given this by God, not by me. Right? I'm not seeking any kind of this authority or power on my own. I am an apostle because Christ called me in his service in Acts chapter 9 when I was headed down to Damascus. And it was only by the will of God because my will was to seek power for myself and to essentially have all of you people put in jail. That's my will. So what did God do? He interrupts my will, destroys my self-centered focus, calls me out of that life, and then sends me as an apostle. So what I'm getting ready to tell you in Ephesians has got power. So he's setting them up saying, this letter, this message, the words that I have, these are the words of God, essentially, right? That's what we hear them as later on as reading this letter. But what Paul's telling them is they have power. Because I'm an apostle that was sent by Christ only by God's will. Right? Paul's not looking for celebrity status. In fact, when Paul would get recognized and get celebrity status, and people would be like, hey, you're, you're God. You know what Paul would do? He, in Scripture, he would tear his clothes off and run around in circles. Declaring that he's nowhere near God, right? Yeah, people see that kind of thing. He's a guy, God. The naked guy running around there. He hated the recognition because it wasn't about Paul, right? Juxtapose that with a whole other sermon about our celebrity Christian pastor, podcast, worship leader culture. The reality is, is that Paul's diffusing and deferring all that away, saying, I don't, that's not me. He said, I didn't choose this. I'm just by God's will. But I am an apostle, and what I'm getting ready to tell you is important. And so we learn something about the power and the authority and the decree by which Paul comes. We also learn something about what believers truly are, not just the ones in Ephesus, but all believers. Listen to what else he says. Second part of verse 1. To all the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So he calls them saints. If you've been around the church at all, you recognize this is a term that is used but has also been stolen and captured and misidentified over the years, right? Because the idea of saints that we have, we immediately go to the Catholic church or some kind of church hierarchy in which there's some hierarchical position of power for normal people that get some extra sort of super status or blessing or whatever it is and they've got this or they've got a couple of verified miracles and therefore we can pray to them. And so saints becomes this really weird word for us, right? Because the saints are like, well, yeah, the disciples and there's that one guy from Argentina and this guy's from Spain. The, the Catholic Church has sort of changed our understanding of saints. But really the idea of saints in Scripture is the same idea as being holy. It's the idea of being set apart. And it drips with Old Testament beauty, right? That God has called by his good nature and set apart those that he is going to use. If you got your Bible, just flip over real quickly to First uh, Peter with me for just one second. I just want you to see Peter talk about this same concept. 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10, this is how Peter frames it. He says, but you are a chosen people. This is chapter 2, verse 9. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you, were not once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It is dripping 
with this idea of being called and set apart. So when he says, to the saints, right? He's calling out those people that have been given a specific promise as followers of Christ. You have been chosen. You are royal priesthood. You have been called out. You are God's people. Which is an incredible thing to think about, right? Because in Ephesus, and for you and I, we are not technically God's people in terms of how the Jews would have seen the setup. The entire Old Testament points to God's people as the Jewish or the Israelite people, and rightly so. It's through Christ that we get grafted into this big family. That Christ died once for all so that we all may become part of this royal priesthood, this holy nation, that you are a saint, not because of what you do. If sainthood or being a saint is determined by your holiness, every one of us is going straight to hell. It's just the reality. We're sinful, we're broken. We're not saints in terms of holiness. We are saints in terms of our set-apart status, that God did something for us that we cannot do for ourselves in Christ, and he actually calls us holy and set-apart because Christ has given us his own identity. We talked about this at the end of our last sermon, or my last sermon two weeks ago, about the Lamb of God. We have this beautiful, right, substitutionary atonement that takes place. For God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what that means? That God made Jesus, who gets all of our garbage. He became sin for us. And what do we get? This incredible exchange we get is holiness. Did you deserve it? Did I deserve it? Absolutely not. But we are now saints because we carry the identity of Christ. That we surrender our life to him. We become holy and set apart. He says, this letter is to you. Remember who you are. You are saints. And you know what that sainthood means? Listen to what else he says. Verse 11 in 2 Peter, or 1 Peter. So dear friends, as saints, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which were against, which war against your soul. Live good lives among the pagans. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. He says, listen, you are saints, and you know what saints do? They live different because why? They have been set apart. You are called to live wholly different than the culture you're engaged in. Live such lives that even though the pagans will look at you and try and make up things about you, they won't be able to because they'll just say, the person lived a good life. They're good people. They love the Lord. They're faithful. They lived wholly, wholly different. He says that the culture and the sinful desire is at war against your soul. Don't give in to it. Saints are set apart, right? So he says because you're set apart, you have a different identity. Live into that identity. You are saints, is what he tells the church in Ephesus, which is rightly for all of us. So to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful. You know what else Christians are as saints? They're faithful. They're faithful to the call of Christ. Like we are called to be a people that trust God even in the most difficult and darkest times. If you truly believe that God is who he says he is, that you truly believe that God sent his son Jesus to die and rescue and exchange his glory for your sinful nature, if you truly believe that God loved and created and made you and breathed life into your lungs, if you truly believe that you are a saint, holy and set apart, not holy because you're perfect, but holy because God did something for you that you can't do, then be faithful, even when life is hard, right? That's the great call of the Christ follower is it's really easy to be faithful when everything is working and clicking and happening and going well. Kids are thriving. Work is going great. Husband and I are connecting. Like all these things are happening. Like life is great. God, we're so blessed. It's super easy. But it's when life takes a turn that life always takes, right? 
And it always will because life is hard. It's filled with disappointments and struggles and hurts and failures. It's filled with sin and decay and brokenness. Why? Because sin runs this world. From the fall on, it's affected everything. And so suffering exists and pain exists and death exists. And Paul says, believers are faithful even in the middle of that. God, I know this is hard. I don't even know what to do. I don't know how to, I don't even understand it well, but I trust you. I believe you. And so you will walk me through this. Believers, saints, they're faithful, right? You know how they're faithful? Paul tells you they're faithful in Christ. They're not faithful because they figured out on their own, like I'm all of God's a super faith. No, it's because Christ dwells in me. He promises to give me everything that I never will be able to do on my own. You don't have the faith on your own to walk through this, but Christ says he will fill us, right? So we are faithful in Christ because we have seen Christ. It's kind of what David says in Psalm 63 when he says, life is pressing in all around him. He's in a desert place. He's struggling. But he says this to God. He says, I have seen you in your sanctuary, and I remember your power and glory. In other words, he's saying, I have seen you, and I trust you, and I believe you. Paul's saying that you are faithful not because you're strong. You're faithful because Christ is in you, right? So he's saying, listen. I'm apostle, Paul. I have the authority, even though I didn't want it, God has given it to me and called me, so hear what I'm about to tell you. It literally is coming from God. And you are saints, you are holy, you've been set apart, rescued by Christ. Be faithful even when life is hard and difficult. Remember, he's not mixing any words. Paul's giving them this last message before he dies. And he says, you're faithful and you're faithful in Christ, not because you can do it on your own. And then finally, he wraps up this verse by saying, verse two, by saying, These things are yours. I want you to understand that they're yours in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So he tells them they've got two things that are due every single believer. That when you surrender your life to Christ, there are two promises that you have. And Paul is telling you, you have grace. In other words, that's what saves us, right? So in order to even be a believer, we have to understand and come in contact, full contact with God's grace. He saves us and delivers us. You can't do it on your own. You cannot perform your way to heaven. You cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot make your way there. You cannot good deed your way there. You cannot good thought your way there. None of that gets us anywhere. It is only by God's grace, right? In fact, even left up to our own good deeds, we just fall farther and deeper into the chasm. So Paul says, in Christ, you've been given grace You've been saved. So grace, and then he says, and peace. And this idea of peace is actually this, goes back to this Hebrew idea of shalom. And the word shalom in Hebrew means peace, but it doesn't mean peace like, hey, stay calm. It means peace like every blessing that God has is yours, and I want you to have it. So when Hebrews greet each other and they say shalom, they're actually saying all the gifts that God has given us are yours. And what Paul is essentially saying here is that grace is yours. And shalom, the peace is yours. He's going to use Ephesians as a way of explaining what all these incredible things are that we have in Christ. And he says, so all of those blessings in Christ are yours. Peace. And that peace begins with having peace in our hearts. Because once, as we learned in Second Peter, First Peter, second ago, we're aliens, foreigners. Right? Paul tells us we were enemies of God. But the peace of God begins now that Christ has reconciled us to creation and to himself and to God, and we have peace with God. And not calm and like everything's going to be easy peace, but we have peace. Our hearts aren't at war with God. And then from that point, we're due all these incredible blessings. 
The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithful, gentleness, self-control. All of those things are ours in Christ. And so what Paul's saying is this is what's been given to you, grace and the shalom. Right? It's yours. Live it and claim it. And it's yours, right, from God, not from you. You can't get it and or earn it. To, right, from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's basically saying these things are yours and they've been given to you. So we wrap all this up by saying this. What does that mean? What does all this mean for us? If we look at this and say, what's the takeaway here? Well, the first takeaway is simply this, and I'll do these really quickly. First takeaway is this, is that Ephesians is God's word. Paul declares it. He says, I'm an apostle. I've been chosen by Christ, I by his will, and therefore this is true and this teaching is authoritative. Scripture is not a supplement to our life. It is never meant to be. Scripture was meant to be God's very love letter to us. It is meant to be the authority by which we have all matters of faith and life and practice govern our life. It is not a supplemental handbook to the things that you want to do. That's why we talk so strongly about it in here, because we want you to have a love affair with it, because Scripture is God's word. It's a theopunestos. It is a breath of God. As we begin to study Ephesians and Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, it is not subject to whether you like it or not, as in terms of if you want to live it, Period. It's authoritative. We're going to run into some things over the next 40 weeks that you're not going to like. I promise. But it does not mean they are not true. And it does not mean that we don't need to cave our hearts to the will of God as opposed to trying to cave our God to our will. So the first takeaway is this. Ephesians is God's word. We're called to be in God's word. Go be in God's word. The only time you're opening up your Bible is when we show up here on Sundays. You are missing your call as a follower of Christ. Brandon has started and worked us through this great Bible reading plan in which he's given summaries for a lot of these books. Like, get involved with that. If not, just grab your own Bible. It's right there. Read the Word of God. Read it. Don't wait for me to unpack it. Read it. I'd love for you to have been through Ephesians already on your own before we ever get there. Here's a great spoiler. Next week we're going to be in verse 3. Right? (laughs) Not like, hey, I wonder where Trev's going. We are telegraphing the pass. Right? So it's God's word, read it, right? It's authoritative. The second thing that we see there, right, is that remember who you are. Like you are a saint, you've been set apart, you have been called and you are, you are called to be faithful. Live differently than the world. We face such incredible pressure to conform, especially as young people. We, as young people, right, I throw myself in there. We, we face this incredible pressure to conform, right? To be so tolerant that we give away God's principles, to be so accepting, right, that we would, disagree with and toss out the things that we know to be truth about God just to not risk offending other people in terms of what we believe. Look, you don't have to be a jerk, but you still got to stand on truth. You've been given grace that you didn't earn that is overwhelmingly yours. You've been given peace, a shalom, these incredible blessings that God has given, and they're calling us to live differently. You are a saint in Christ, and you've been set apart. Live that way. If you've got something in your life that needs to be purged, purge it. Start small. You don't have to swim the ocean today, but you can get in the water. Take day one and get that thing out of your life. I'm not going to deal with it today. I'm not going to let that negative thought, that thing, that anxiety, that fear, that behavior, that action, that visual, whatever it is, today's the day I rid that, and then I'll worry about tomorrow and tomorrow. Right? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Right? We don't have to swim the whole ocean. 
but we begin to live who we are. We've been set apart by God's grace, given all these blessings in Christ, right? So Paul says the culture is at war with your soul. Recognize it. If you don't recognize it, you're lost, right? So know who you are, remember who you are. And that final piece right there kind of ends is essentially this, like don't forget what you've been given and give those things away. You've been given grace and peace. Give them away. Be a gracious, kind, giving person, right? If God has lavished on you what you don't deserve, and not one of us in here deserve it, right? He gave us his grace. Left up to our own devices, we are, we are destined for destruction. Yet God continually shows us his grace and mercy. He did it with the Israelites. He, you're grafted into that. He continues to do it with you. Be a person that gives grace away, right? If Christ gave it to you, give it to other people. You've been given peace. It means your soul is no longer at war against God. Don't be at war against other people. Be a person that harbors peace. Be a person that demonstrates what you've been given in Christ to the watching world. You don't have to be that guy or that girl. You don't have to point out everyone's flaw on Facebook or whatever it is. You don't have to. You don't have to vindicate yourself to win every argument in your home. You don't have to be right about everything. Be a person that accepts grace that's been given to you and give it to other people. Close your mouth every now and again. Not gonna kill us, right? I preach literally to myself. Be givers of grace and peace. This is what Paul's essentially saying to the church. He's going, look, I'm gonna tell you it's powerful and I'm gonna bring it honestly and it's gonna be hard and you're gonna need to saddle up because you're the church. You're the saints. You've been set apart. Be faithful. Fight against culture. God's given you grace and peace. It's all yours. Everything you need, you have. So give it away. And that essentially becomes the call of the church. And what we're going to see unfold over the next weeks is how we begin to live these things out. But there probably is no better picture of grace and peace than this table. I mean, this table is the effectual call of God's incredible, lavishing grace. It's a picture of a God who loves us so deeply and so immensely that he sent his son Jesus to die and reconcile broken creation to himself. Like most literally, we were at war with God, and so God sent his son to end it, to be the final sacrifice, the only sacrifice that we would ever need again, to die on the cross so that we might be redeemed and fully alive in him. This is the picture of the grace that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. And the promise at this table is the shalom that comes with it, the peace and the promises and the gifts that God has given to those who trust in Christ. This morning, we're going to take communion by means of intinction, which is a fancy way of saying as you come down to the front or in the back, you'll take a piece of bread and you'll dip it in the cup and eat it and return to your seat. And then we ask you to remain standing as we close our time in worship. But on the very night that he was betrayed, on the very night that Jesus would gather with his disciples, the night that he knew he would go before uh, the authorities and the chief priests and ultimately be handed over, on the night that everyone would desert him, he gathered his disciples and after dinner, he took this bread and he looked at them and he said, this bread is my body. And after he gave thanks, he broke it and he said, my body is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This has been poured out for you. This is the new covenant. That as long as this bread and this cup proclaim it, until I come again.
back station. We do have gluten-free options available up here as well, be at the front. But let's take a moment and pray as our elders come forward this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship and open your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is faithful and good. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who has given us life in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is fully forgiving and free. We thank you, Lord, that this promise that we have in Jesus is ours, that this table represents something so much larger than bread and wine. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified as we celebrate this meal together and that you would be the focus and the heart of our worship. Lord, we ask these things in the risen name of Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Come forward and join us in this meal, and then we'll remain standing and celebrate God together. All our sins are stones at the bottom of your oceans, and all our filthy stains have been washed away. By the blood of the Son, I have overcome the grave. By the blood of the Son, I have overcome the grave.
opportunity to gather this morning and celebrate this meal, communion, what it represents and what it is, what it means, to open up this book, this incredible letter that was written by Paul to the church to understand who they were and to live those things out in a way that changes them, to to understand that we've been reconciled to Christ, been given grace, this free gift that is ours in Christ. And the Lord, we are called to give that away. Lord, you did for us what we could not do on our own. And we are eternally grateful. And so, Lord, as we celebrate these things and get excited about the journey that we're going to embark on over the next weeks in Scripture, prepare our hearts. Remind us who we are. Challenge us to get into your word, to live the sainthood that we've been given in Christ, to be people that understand the grace and peace that we've been given and give it away. So as we close our time in worship, Lord, we ask that you would be glorified and these things would ring true on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. What gift of grace is Jesus my and freedom my steadfast love my deep and boundless peace to this I hold my hope is only Mind yet not I but through. 
not forsaken for by my side the Savior he will stay I labor on in weakness and rejoicing for in my need his power is displayed do this I hope my shepherd
lot of things today, uh, but hopefully it's a great foretaste of what's to come. Uh, just by way of a quick reminder, all our life group information is here. Brandon is an infinite wisdom, forgot to mention his own life group, uh, which is a great one. It's a catch-all. They meet on Thursday nights at Brandon and Jenny's house. Their information's on here. If you're wondering if I fit in a group, you probably fit in that one. So they'd love to have you. Um, if you're sticking around for Vine Kids training or all church retreat meeting, uh, they'll be here in the building. But Take what we learned today, we talked about today, what we understand to be true about God's word, right? That we've been called to be saints, set apart, holy, not because we've done anything, but that the grace and peace that God has lavished on us through Christ. Go believe those things, live those things, and be bearers of those things. Go in peace.